Chapters 13 and 14 of The Golden Bough. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. Chapter 13 The Kings of Rome and Alba. 1. Numa and Egeria. From the foregoing survey of custom and legend, we may infer that the sacred marriage of the powers both of vegetation and of water has been celebrated by many peoples for the sake of promoting the fertility of the earth, on which the life of animals and men ultimately depends, and that in such rites the part of the divine bridegroom or bride is often sustained by a man or woman. The evidence may, therefore, lend some countenance to the conjecture that in the sacred grove at Naimi, where the powers of vegetation and of water manifested themselves in the fair forms of shady woods, tumbling cascades and glassy lake, a marriage like that of our King and Queen of May was annually celebrated between the mortal King of the Wood and the immortal Queen of the Wood, Diana. In this connection, an important figure in the grove was the water-nymph Egeria, who was worshipped by pregnant women because she, like Diana, could grant them an easy delivery. From this it seems fairly safe to conclude that, like many other springs, the water of Egeria was credited with a power of facilitating conception as well as delivery. The votive offerings found on the spot, which clearly refer to the begetting of children, may possibly have been dedicated to Egeria rather than to Diana, or perhaps we should rather say that the water-nymph Egeria is only another form of the great nature-goddess Diana herself. The mistress of sounding rivers, as well as of umbrageous woods, who had her home by the lake, and her mirror in its calm waters, and whose Greek counterpart, Artemis, loved to haunt meres and springs. The identification of Egeria with Diana is confirmed by a statement of Plutarch that Egeria was one of the oak-nymphs, whom the Romans believed to preside over every green oak-grove. For, while Diana was a goddess of the woodlands in general, she appears to have been intimately associated with oaks in particular, especially at her sacred grove of Naimi. Perhaps, then, Egeria was the fairy of a spring that flowed from the roots of a sacred oak. Such a spring is said to have gushed from the foot of the great oak at Dodona, and from its murmurous flow the priestess drew oracles. Among the Greeks a draught of water from certain sacred springs or wells was supposed to confer prophetic powers. This would explain the more than mortal wisdom with which, according to tradition, Egeria inspired her royal husband or lover, Numa. When we remember how very often in early society the king is held responsible for the fall of rain and the fruitfulness of the earth, it seems hardly rash to conjecture that in the legend of the nuptials of Numa and Egeria we have a reminiscence of a sacred marriage which the old Roman kings regularly contracted with a goddess of vegetation and water for the purpose of enabling him to discharge his divine or magical functions. 
in such a rite, the part of the goddess might be played either by an image or a woman, and if by a woman, probably by the queen. If there is any truth in this conjecture, we may suppose that the king and queen of Rome masqueraded as god and goddess at their marriage, exactly as the king and queen of Egypt appear to have done. The legend of Numa and Egeria points to a sacred grove rather than to a house, as the scene of the nuptial union, which, like the marriage of the king and queen of May, or of the vine-god and the queen of Athens, may have been annually celebrated as a charm to ensure the fertility not only of the earth, but of man and beast. Now, according to some accounts, the scene of the marriage was no other than the sacred grove of Nemi and on quite independent grounds we have been led to suppose that in that same grove the king of the wood was wedded to Diana. The convergence of the two distinct lines of inquiry suggests that the legendary union of the Roman king with Egeria may have been a reflection or duplicate of the union of the king of the wood with Egeria or her double Diana. This does not imply that the Roman kings ever served as kings of the wood in the Arician grove, but only that they may originally have been invested with a sacred character of the same general kind, and may have held office on similar terms. To be more explicit, it is possible that they reigned not by right of birth, but in virtue of their supposed divinity as representatives or embodiments of a god, and that as such they mated with a goddess, and had to prove their fitness from time to time to discharge their divine functions by engaging in a severe bodily struggle, which may often have proved fatal to them, leaving the crown to their victorious adversary. Our knowledge of the Roman kingship is far too scanty to allow us to affirm any one of these propositions with confidence, but at least there are some scattered hints or indications of a similarity in all these respects between the priests of Nemi and the kings of Rome, or perhaps rather between their remote predecessors in the dark ages which preceded the dawn of legend. 2. The King as Jupiter In the first place, then, it would seem that the Roman king personated no lesser deity than Jupiter himself. For down to imperial times, victorious generals, celebrating a triumph, and magistrates presiding at the games in the circus, wore the costume of Jupiter, which was borrowed for the occasion from his great temple on the Capitol, and it has been held with a high degree of probability, both by ancients and moderns, that in so doing they copied the traditionary attire and insignia of the Roman kings. They rode a chariot drawn by four laurel-crowned horses through the city, where everyone else went on foot. They wore purple robes, embroidered or spangled with gold. In the right hand they bore a branch of laurel, and in the left hand an ivory sceptre topped with an eagle. A wreath of laurel crowned their brows. Their face was reddened with vermilion, and over their head a slave held a heavy crown of massy gold, fashioned in the likeness of oak-leaves. In this attire, the assimilation of the man to the god comes out above all in the eagle-topped sceptre, the oaken crown, and the reddened face. For the eagle was the bird of Jove, 
the oak was his sacred tree, and the face of his image standing in his four-horse chariot on the Capitol was in like manner regularly dyed red on festivals. Indeed, so important was it deemed to keep the divine features properly rouged, that one of the first duties of the censors was to contract for having this done. As the triumphal procession always ended in the temple of Jupiter on the Capitol, it was peculiarly appropriate that the head of the victor should be graced by a crown of oak leaves, for not only was every oak consecrated to Jupiter, but the Capitoline temple of the god was said to have been built by Romulus beside a sacred oak, venerated by shepherds, to which the king attached the spoils won by him from the enemy's general in battle. We are expressly told that the oak crown was sacred to Capitoline Jupiter. A passage of Ovid proves that it was regarded as the god's special emblem. According to a tradition which we have no reason to reject, Rome was founded by settlers from Alba Longa, a city situated on the slope of the Alban hills, overlooking the lake and Campania. Hence, if the Roman kings claimed to be representatives or embodiments of Jupiter, the god of the sky, of the thunder, and of the oak, it is natural to suppose that the kings of Alba, from whom the founder of Rome traced his descent, may have set up the same claim before them. Now the Alban dynasty bore the name of Silvii, or Woods, and it can hardly be without significance that in the vision of the historic glories of Rome revealed to Aeneas in the underworld, Virgil, an antiquary as well as a poet, should represent all the line of Silvii as crowned with oak. A chaplet of oak-leaves would thus seem to have been part of the insignia of the old kings of Alba Longa, as of their successors, the kings of Rome. In both cases it marked the monarch as the human representative of the oak god. The Roman annals record that one of the kings of Alba, Romulus, Remulus, or Amulius Silvius by name, set up for being a god in his own person, the equal or superior of Jupiter, to support his pretensions and overawe his subjects, he constructed machines whereby he mimicked the clap of thunder and the flash of lightning. Diodorus relates that in the season of fruitage, when thunder is loud and frequent, the king commanded his soldiers to drown the roar of heaven's artillery by clashing their swords against their shields. But he paid the penalty of his impiety, for he perished, he and his house, struck by a thunderbolt in the midst of a dreadful storm. Swollen by the rain, the Alban lake rose in flood and drowned his palace. But still, says an ancient historian, when the water is low and the surface unruffled by a breeze, you may see the ruins of the palace at the bottom of the clear lake. Taken along with the similar story of Salmoneus, king of Elis, this legend points to a real custom observed by the early kings of Greece and Italy, who, like their fellows in Africa down to modern times, may have been expected to produce rain and thunder for the good of the crops. The priestly king Numa passed for an adept in the art of drawing down lightning from the sky. Mock thunder, we know, has been made by various peoples as a rain charm in modern times. Why should it not have been made by kings in antiquity? Thus, if the kings of Alba and Rome imitated Jupiter as god of the oak by wearing a crown of oak leaves, 
they seem also to have copied him in his character of a weather-god by pretending to make thunder and lightning. And if they did so, it is probable that, like Jupiter in heaven and many kings on earth, they also acted as public rain-makers, wringing showers from the dark sky by their enchantments, whenever the parched earth cried out for the refreshing moisture. At Rome the sluices of heaven were opened by means of a sacred stone, and the ceremony appears to have formed part of the ritual of Jupiter Elicius, the god who elicits from the clouds the flashing lightning and the dripping rain and who so well fitted to perform the ceremony as the king, the living representative of the sky-god. If the kings of Rome aped Capitoline Jove, their predecessors, the kings of Alba, probably laid themselves out to mimic the great Latian Jupiter, who had his seat above the city on the summit of the Alban mountain. Latinus, the legendary ancestor of the dynasty, was said to have been changed into Latian Jupiter, after vanishing from the world in the mysterious fashion characteristic of the old Latin kings. The sanctuary of the god on the top of the mountain was the religious centre of the Latin League, as Alba was its political capital, till Rome wrested the supremacy from its ancient rival. Apparently no temple, in our sense of the word, was ever erected to Jupiter on this his holy mountain. As god of the sky and thunder, he appropriately received the homage of his worshippers in the open air. The massive wall, of which some remains still enclose the old garden of the Passionist Monastery, seems to have been part of the sacred precinct, which Tarquin the Proud, the last king of Rome, marked out for the solemn annual assembly of the Latin League. The god's oldest sanctuary on this airy mountain-top was a grove, and bearing in mind not merely the special consecration of the oak to Jupiter, but also the traditional oak crown of the Alban kings, and the analogy of the Capitoline Jupiter at Rome, we may suppose that the trees in the grove were oaks. We know that in antiquity Mount Algidus, an outlying group of the Alban hills, was covered with dark forests of oak and among the tribes who belonged to the Latin League in the earliest days, and were entitled to share the flesh of the white bull sacrificed on the Alban Mount, there was one whose members styled themselves the Men of the Oak, doubtless on account of the woods among which they dwelt. But we should err if we pictured to ourselves the country as covered in historical times with an unbroken forest of oaks. Theophrastus has left us a description of the woods of Latium as they were in the fourth century before Christ. He says, The land of the Latins is all moist. The plains produce laurels, myrtles, and wonderful beeches, for they fell trees of such a size that a single stem suffices for the keel of a Tyrrhenian ship. Pines and firs grow in the mountains. What they call the land of Circe is a lofty headland thickly wooded with oak, myrtle, and luxuriant laurels. The natives say that Circe dwelt there, and they show the grave of Elpinor, from which grow myrtles such as wreaths are made of, whereas the other myrtle trees are tall. Thus the prospect from the top of the Alban Mount in the early days of Rome must have been very different in some respects from what it is to-day. The purple Apennines, indeed, in their eternal calm on the one hand, and the shining Mediterranean, in its eternal unrest, on the other, no doubt looked then much as they look now, 
whether bathed in sunshine or chequered by the fleeting shadows of clouds. But instead of the desolate brown expanse of the fever-stricken Campania, spanned by its long lines of ruined aqueducts, like the broken arches of the bridge in the vision of Mirza, the eye must have ranged over woodlands that stretched away mile after mile on all sides, till their varied hues of green or autumnal scarlet and gold melted insensibly into the blue of the distant mountains and sea. But Jupiter did not reign alone on the top of his holy mountain. He had his consort with him, the goddess Juno, who was worshipped here under the same title, Moneta, as on the Capitol at Rome. As the oak crown was sacred to Jupiter and Juno on the Capitol, so we may suppose it was on the Alban Mount, from which the Capitoline worship was derived. Thus the oak god would have his oak goddess in the sacred oak grove. So at Dodona the oak god Zeus was coupled with Dione, whose very name is only a dialectically different form of Juno. And so on the top of Mount Cithiron, as we have seen, he appears to have been periodically wedded to an oaken image of Hera. It is probable, though it cannot be positively proved, that the sacred marriage of Jupiter and Juno was annually celebrated by all the peoples of the Latin stock in the month which they named after the goddess, the midsummer month of June. If at any time of the year the Romans celebrated the sacred marriage of Jupiter and Juno, as the Greeks commonly celebrated the corresponding marriage of Zeus and Hera, we may suppose that under the Republic the ceremony was either performed over images of the divine pair, or acted by the Flamen Dialis and his wife the Flaminica. For the Flamen Dialis was the priest of Jove, Indeed, ancient and modern writers have regarded him with much probability as a living image of Jupiter, a human embodiment of the sky-god. In earlier times, the Roman king, as representative of Jupiter, would naturally play the part of the heavenly bridegroom at the sacred marriage, while his queen would figure as the heavenly bride, just as in Egypt the king and queen masqueraded in the character of deities, and as at Athens the queen annually wedded the vine-god Dionysus. That the Roman king and queen should act the parts of Jupiter and Juno would seem all the more natural, because these deities themselves bore the title of king and queen. Whether that was so or not, the legend of Numa and Egeria appears to embody a reminiscence of a time when the priestly king himself played the part of the divine bridegroom, and as we have seen reason to suppose that the Roman kings personated the oak god, while Egeria is expressly said to have been an oak nymph, the story of their union in the sacred grove raises a presumption that at Rome in the regal period a ceremony was periodically performed exactly analogous to that which was annually celebrated at Athens, down to the time of Aristotle. The marriage of the king of Rome to the oak goddess, like the wedding of the vine-god to the queen of Athens, must have been intended to quicken the growth of vegetation by homeopathic magic. Of the two forms of the rite, we can hardly doubt that the Roman was the older, and that long before the northern invaders met with the vine on the shores of the Mediterranean, their forefathers had married the tree-god to the tree-goddess in the vast oak forests of central and northern Europe. 
In the England of our day the forests have mostly disappeared, yet still on many a village green, and in many a country lane, a faded image of the sacred marriage lingers in the rustic pageantry of May Day. End of chapter 13 Chapter 14 The Succession to the Kingdom in Ancient Latium in regard to the Roman king, whose priestly functions were inherited by his successor, the king of sacred rites, the foregoing discussion has led us to the following conclusions. He represented, and indeed personated, Jupiter, the great god of the sky, the thunder, and the oak, and in that character made rain, thunder, and lightning for the good of his subjects, like many more kings of the weather in other parts of the world. Further, he not only mimicked the oak-god by wearing an oak-wreath and other insignia of divinity, but he was married to the oak-nymph Egeria, who appears to have been merely a local form of Diana, in her character of a goddess of woods, of waters, and of childbirth. All these conclusions which we have reached, mainly by consideration of the Roman evidence, may with great probability be applied to the other Latin communities. They too probably had of old their divine or priestly kings, who transmitted their religious functions, without their civil powers, to their successors, the kings of the sacred rites. But we have still to ask, what was the rule of succession to the kingdom among the old Latin tribes? According to tradition, there were in all eight kings of Rome, and with regard to the five last of them, at all events, we can hardly doubt that they actually sat on the throne, and that the traditional history of their reigns is, in its main outlines, correct. Now, it is very remarkable that though the first king of Rome, Romulus, is said to have descended from the royal house of Alba, in which the kingship is represented as hereditary in the male line, not one of the Roman kings was immediately succeeded by his son on the throne yet several left sons or grandsons behind them. On the other hand, one of them was descended from a former king through his mother, not through his father, and three of the kings, namely Tatius, the elder Tarquin, and Servius Tullius, were succeeded by their sons-in-law, who were all either foreigners or of foreign descent. This suggests that the right to kingship was transmitted in the female line, and was actually exercised by foreigners who married the royal princesses. To put it in technical language, the succession to kingship at Rome, and probably in Latium generally, would seem to have been determined by certain rules which have moulded early society in many parts of the world, namely exogamy, bina marriage, and female kinship or mother-kin. Exogamy is the rule which obliges a man to marry a woman of a different clan from his own. Bina marriage is the rule that he must leave the home of his birth and live with his wife's people, and female kinship or mother kin is the system of tracing relationship and transmitting the family name through women instead of through men. If these principles regulated descent of the kingship among the ancient Latins, the state of things in this respect would be somewhat as follows. The political and religious centre of each community would be the perpetual fire on the king's hearth, tended by vestal virgins of the royal clan. The king would be a man of another clan, perhaps of another town, or even of another race, who had married a daughter of his predecessor, and received the kingdom with her. 
The children whom he had by her would inherit their mother's name, not his. The daughters would remain at home. The sons, when they grew up, would go away into the world, marry, and settle in their wives' country, whether as kings or commoners. Of the daughters who stayed at home, some or all would be dedicated as vestal virgins for a longer or shorter time to the service of the fire on the hearth, and one of them would in time become the consort of her father's successor. This hypothesis has the advantage of explaining in a simple and natural way some obscure features in the traditional history of the Latin kingship. Thus the legends which tell how Latin kings were born of virgin mothers and divine fathers become at least more intelligible. For, stripped of their fabulous element, tales of this sort mean no more than that a woman has been gotten with child by a man unknown, and this uncertainty as to fatherhood is more easily compatible with a system of kinship which ignores paternity than with one which makes it all-important. If at the birth of the Latin kings their fathers were really unknown, the fact points either to a general looseness of life in the royal family, or to a special relaxation of moral rules on certain occasions, when men and women reverted for a season to the license of an earlier age. Such Saturnalias are not uncommon at some stages of social evolution. In our own country, traces of them long survived in the practices of May Day and Whitsuntide, if not of Christmas. Children born of more or less promiscuous intercourse, which characterises festivals of this kind, would naturally be fathered on the god to whom the particular festival was dedicated. In this connection, it may be significant that a festival of jollity and drunkenness was celebrated by the plebeians and slaves at Rome on Midsummer Day, and that the festival was specially associated with the fire-born king Servius Tullius, being held in honour of Fortuna, the goddess who loved Servius as Egeria loved Numa. The popular merry-makings at this season included foot-races and boat-races, the Tiber was gay with flower-wreathed boats, in which the young folk sat quaffing wine. The festival appears to have been a sort of midsummer Saturnalia, answering to the real Saturnalia which fell at midwinter. In modern Europe, as we shall learn later on, the great midsummer festival has been above all a festival of lovers and of fire. One of its principal features is the pairing of sweethearts, who leap over the bonfires hand in hand, or throw flowers across the flames to each other. And many omens of love and marriage are drawn from the flowers which bloom at this mystic season. It is the time of the roses and of love. Yet the innocence and beauty of such festivals in modern times ought not to blind us to the likelihood that in earlier days they were marked by coarser features, which were probably of the essence of the rites. Indeed, among the rude Estonian peasantry, these features seem to have lingered down to our own generation, if not to the present day. One other feature in the Roman celebration of Midsummer deserves to be specially noticed. The custom of rowing in flower-decked boats on the river on this day proves that it was to some extent a water festival, and water has always, down to modern times, played a conspicuous part in the rites of Midsummer Day, which explains why the church, in throwing its cloak over the old heathen festival, chose to dedicate it to St. John the Baptist. 
The hypothesis that the Latin kings may have been begotten at an annual festival of love is necessarily a mere conjecture, though the traditional birth of Numa at the festival of the Parilia, when shepherds leapt across the spring bonfires, as lovers leap across the midsummer fires, may perhaps be thought to lend it a faint colour of probability. But it is quite possible that the uncertainty as to their fathers may not have arisen till long after the death of the kings, when their figures began to melt away into the cloudland of fable, assuming fantastic shapes and gorgeous colouring as they passed from earth to heaven. If they were alien immigrants, strangers and pilgrims in the land they ruled over, it would be natural enough that the people should forget their lineage, and forgetting it should provide them with another, which made up in lustre what it lacked in truth. The final apotheosis, which represented the kings not merely as sprung from gods, but as themselves deities incarnate, would be much facilitated if in their lifetime, as we have seen reason to think, they had actually laid claim to divinity. If among the Latins the women of royal blood always stayed at home, and received as their consorts men of another stock, and often of another country, who reigned as kings in virtue of their marriage with a native princess, we can understand not only why foreigners wore the crown at Rome, but also why foreign names occur in the list of the Alban kings. In a state of society where nobility is reckoned only through women, in other words, where descent through the mother is everything, and descent through the father is nothing, no objection will be felt to uniting girls of the highest rank to men of humble birth, even to aliens or slaves, provided that in themselves the men appear to be suitable mates. What really matters is that the royal stock on which the prosperity and even the existence of the people is supposed to depend should be perpetuated in a vigorous and efficient form, and for this purpose it is necessary that the women of the royal family should bear children to men who are physically and mentally fit, according to the standard of early society, to discharge the important duty of procreation. Thus the personal qualities of the kings at this stage of social evolution are deemed of vital importance. If they, like their consorts, are of royal and divine descent, so much the better, but it is not essential that they should be so. At Athens, as at Rome, we find traces of succession to the throne by marriage with a royal princess. For two of the most ancient kings of Athens, namely Cecrops and Amphictyon, are said to have married the daughters of their predecessors. This tradition is to a certain extent confirmed by evidence, pointing to the conclusion that at Athens male kinship was preceded by female kinship. Further, if I am right in supposing that in ancient Latium the royal families kept their daughters at home, and sent forth their sons to marry princesses and reign among their wives' people, it will follow that the male descendants would reign in successive generations over different kingdoms. Now this seems to have happened both in ancient Greece and in ancient Sweden, from which we may legitimately infer that it was a custom practised by more than one branch of the Aryan stock in Europe. Many Greek traditions relate how a prince left his native land, and, going to a far country, married the king's daughter, and succeeded to the kingdom. Various reasons are assigned by ancient Greek writers for these migrations of the princes. 
A common one is that the king's son had been banished for murder. This would explain very well why he fled his own land, but it is no reason at all why he should become king of another. We may suspect that such reasons are afterthoughts devised by writers, who, accustomed to the rule that a son should succeed to his father's property and kingdom, were hard put to it to account for so many traditions of king's sons who quitted the land of their birth to reign over a foreign kingdom. In Scandinavian traditions we meet with traces of similar customs. For we read of daughters' husbands, who received a share of the kingdoms of their royal fathers-in-law, even when these fathers-in-law had sons of their own. In particular, during the five generations which preceded Harold the Fair-Haired, male members of the Inglingar family, which is said to have come from Sweden, are reported in the Heimskringla, or Sagas of the Norwegian Kings, to have obtained at least six provinces in Norway, by marriage with the daughters of the local kings. Thus it would seem that among some Aryan peoples, at a certain stage of their social evolution, it has been customary to regard women, and not men, as the channels in which royal blood flows, and to bestow the kingdom in each successive generation, on a man of another family, and often of another country, who marries one of the princesses, and reigns over his wife's people. A common type of popular tale, which relates how an adventurer, coming to a strange land, wins the hand of the king's daughter, and with her the half or the whole of the kingdom, may well be a reminiscence of a real custom. Where usages and ideas of this sort prevail, it is obvious that the kingship is merely an appanage of marriage with a woman of the blood royal. The old Danish historian Saxo Grammaticus puts this view of the kingship very clearly in the mouth of Hermutrude, a legendary queen of Scotland. Indeed she was a queen, says Hermutrude, and, but that her sex gainsaid it, might be deemed a king, nay, and this is yet truer, whomsoever she thought worthy of her bed was at once a king, and she yielded her kingdom with herself. Thus her sceptre and her hand went together. The statement is all the more significant because it appears to reflect the actual practice of the Pictish kings. We know from the testimony of Bede that whenever a doubt arose as to the succession, the Picts chose their kings from the female rather than the male line. The personal qualities which recommended a man for a royal alliance and a succession to the throne would naturally vary according to the popular ideas of the time and the character of the king or his substitute but it is reasonable to suppose that among them in early society physical strength and beauty would hold a prominent place. Sometimes, apparently, the right to the hand of the princess and to the throne has been determined by a race. The Alitemnian Libyans awarded the kingdom to the fleetest runner. Amongst the old Prussians, candidates for nobility raced on horseback to the king, and the one who reached him first was ennobled. According to tradition, the earliest games at Olympia were held by Endymion, who set his sons to run a race for the kingdom. His tomb was said to be at the point of the race-course from which the runners started. The famous story of Pelops and Hippodamia is perhaps only another version of the legend that the first races at Olympia were run for no less a prize than a kingdom. 
These traditions may very well reflect a real custom of racing for a bride, for such a custom appears to have prevailed among various peoples, though in practice it has degenerated into a mere form or pretense. Thus there is one race called love-chase, which may be considered a part of the form of marriage among the Kyrgyz. In this the bride, armed with a formidable whip, mounts a fleet horse, and is pursued by all the young men who make any pretensions to her hand. She will be given as a prize to the one who catches her, but she has the right, besides urging on her horse to the utmost, to use her whip, often with no mean force, to keep off those lovers who are unwelcome to her, and she will probably favour the one whom she has already chosen in her heart. The race for the bride is found also among the Koryaks of northeastern Asia. It takes place in a large tent, round which many separate compartments, called pologs, are arranged in a continuous circle. The girl gets a start, and is clear of the marriage if she can run through all the compartments without being caught by the bridegroom. The women of the encampment place every obstacle in the man's way, tripping him up, belabouring him with switches, and so forth, so that he has little chance of succeeding unless the girl wishes it, and waits for him. Similar customs appear to have been practised by all the Teutonic peoples, for the German, Anglo-Saxon, and Norse languages possess in common a word for marriage which means simply bride-race. Moreover, traces of the custom survived into modern times. Thus it appears that the right to marry a girl, and especially a princess, has often been conferred as a prize in an athletic contest. There would be no reason, therefore, for surprise if the Roman kings, before bestowing their daughters in marriage, should have resorted to this ancient mode of testing the personal qualities of their future sons-in-law and successors. If my theory is correct, the Roman king and queen personated Jupiter and his divine consort, and in the character of these divinities went through the annual ceremony of a sacred marriage for the purpose of causing the crops to grow, and men and cattle to be fruitful and multiply. Thus they did what in more northern lands we may suppose the king and queen of May were believed to do in days of old. Now we have seen that the right to play the part of the king of May and to wed the queen of May has sometimes been determined by an athletic contest, particularly a race. This may have been a relic of an old marriage custom of the sort we have examined, a custom designed to test the fitness of a candidate for matrimony. Such a test might reasonably be applied with peculiar rigour to the king, in order to ensure that no personal defect should incapacitate him for the performance of those sacred rites and ceremonies, on which, even more than on the dispatch of his civil and military duties, the safety and prosperity of the community were believed to depend and it would be natural to require of him that from time to time he should submit himself afresh to the same ordeal for the sake of publicly demonstrating that he was still equal to the discharge of his high calling. A relic of that test perhaps survived in the ceremony known as the Flight of the King, Regifugium, which continued to be annually observed at Rome down to imperial times. On the 24th day of February, a sacrifice used to be offered in the Comitium, and when it was over the king of the sacred rites fled from the forum. 
we may conjecture that the flight of the king was originally a race for an annual kingship, which may have been awarded as a prize to the fleetest runner. At the end of the year the king might run again for a second term of office, and so on, until he was defeated and deposed, or perhaps slain. In this way, what had once been a race would tend to assume the character of a flight and a pursuit. The king would be given a start. He ran, and his competitors ran after him, and if he were overtaken, he had to yield the crown, and perhaps his life, to the lightest of foot among them. In time a man of masterful character might succeed in seating himself permanently on the throne, and reducing the annual race or flight to the empty form which it seems always to have been within historical times. The rite was sometimes interpreted as a commemoration of the expulsion of the kings from Rome, but this appears to have been a mere afterthought, devised to explain a ceremony of which the old meaning was forgotten. It is far more likely that in acting thus the king of the sacred rites was merely keeping up an ancient custom which in the regal period had been annually observed by his predecessors the kings. What the original intention of the rite may have been must probably always remain more or less a matter of conjecture. The present explanation is suggested with a full sense of the difficulty and obscurity in which the subject is involved. Thus, if my theory is correct, the yearly flight of the Roman king was a relic of a time when the kingship was an annual office awarded, along with the hand of a princess, to the victorious athlete or gladiator, who thereafter figured, along with his bride, as a god and goddess, at a sacred marriage, designed to ensure the fertility of the earth by homeopathic magic. If I am right in supposing that in very early times the old Latin kings personated a god and were regularly put to death in that character, we can better understand the mysterious or violent ends to which so many of them are said to have come. We have seen that, according to tradition, one of the kings of Alba was killed by a thunderbolt for impiously mimicking the thunder of Jupiter. Romulus is said to have vanished mysteriously like Aeneas, or to have been cut to pieces by the patricians whom he had offended, and the 7th of July, the day on which he perished, was a festival which bore some resemblance to the Saturnalia. For on that day the female slaves were allowed to take certain remarkable liberties. They dressed up as free women in the attire of matrons and maids, and in this guise they went forth from the city, scoffed and jeered at all whom they met, and engaged among themselves in a fight, striking and throwing stones at each other. Another Roman king who perished by violence was Tatius, the Sabine colleague of Romulus. It is said that he was at Lavinium, offering a public sacrifice to the ancestral gods, when some men, to whom he had given umbrage, dispatched him with the sacrificial knives and spits which they had snatched from the altar. The occasion and the manner of his death suggest that the slaughter may have been a sacrifice rather than an assassination. Again, Tullius Hostilius, the successor of Numa, was commonly said to have been killed by lightning, but many held that he was murdered at the instigation of Ancus Marcius, who reigned after him. Speaking of the more or less mythical Numa, the type of the priestly king, Plutarch observes that his fame was enhanced by the fortunes of the later kings, for of the five who reigned after him, 
the last was deposed and ended his life in exile, and of the remaining four not one died a natural death, for three of them were assassinated, and Tullus Hostilius was consumed by thunderbolts. These legends of the violent ends of the Roman kings suggest that the contest by which they gained the throne may sometimes have been a mortal combat rather than a race. If that were so, the analogy which we have traced between Rome and Nemi would be still closer. At both places the sacred kings, the living representatives of the Godhead, would thus be liable to suffer deposition and death at the hands of any resolute man who could prove his divine right to the holy office by the strong arm and the sharp sword. It would not be surprising if among the early Latins the claim to the kingdom should often have been settled by single combat, for down to historical time the Umbrians regularly submitted their private disputes to the ordeal of battle, and he who cut his adversary's throat was thought thereby to have proved the justice of his cause beyond the reach of Cavill. End of chapter 14